Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> I want to continue this uh, talks on jhanas. I still have not come to jhana yet. <laughs> Today, I want to say something also related to uh, some uh, uh, views about jhana. Different people have different uh, views about jhana, whether or not it is uh, necessary or to have jhana. Some say we don't need jhanas at all for attaining the stream entry. Stream entry is the, the first level of uh, supramundane attainment. And uh, some say, yes, we need jhanas for attaining the stream entry. And some say, whether or not we need jhanas depend on individual preferences. And some others say, no, that is not enough. Um, we need only access concentration to attain stream entry. And some say that is not enough, we need the first jhana, but nothing more than that. <coughs> some others say that is not enough. <laughs> we need the second jhana, at least, to attain the stream entry. And others say third jhana, and some others say, no, we need only, uh, we need four jhanas to attain stream entry. Uh, some say we can gain jhana only uh, from uh, vipassana meditation. We don't have to do anything specific to attain jhanas. These are different views <clears throat> and uh, to uh, explain these different views, uh, I like to give some uh, examples. Uh, you know, the Buddha's uh, teaching, he taught uh, for 45 years and uh, gave uh, at least 17 or 18,000 sermons and some say 84,000. 84,000 means uh, not the sermons themselves but aspects of Dhamma for 45 years. And during this time he uh, mentioned jhanas in many, many places under various circumstances and uh, therefore uh, it is easy for people to come up with different views, different opinions about uh, jhanas. Because if you read one discourse 
and in one discourse you cannot find all of them. Like uh, if you read the first sermon, in the first sermon, uh, jhana as such is not mentioned except the Noble Eightfold Path, where it is uh, mentioned, but not in any details. And there are many discourses where Buddha even did not use the word jhana, uh, but mentioned various other things. And therefore it is very easy for somebody when somebody just uh, superficially scan uh, the teaching, um, can come up with these different views. There was a monk, uh, he went to uh, one monk and asked, uh, uh, what one should do to attain liberation, to attain enlightenment, stream, stream entry to begin with. By the way, <coughs> what is the stream entry? It's called Sota Panna in Pali. Sota uh, is translated into English as a stream. Apanna means entry. So Sota Panna therefore means entering into a stream, entering the stream. But one day, the Buddha asked uh, Venerable uh, Sariputta in front of many other disciples, Sariputta, you have heard the word Sotapanna, Sotapanna, Sotapanna. What do you understand by the term Sota? This is recorded in Sanyutta Nikaya. Pendabhasariputta said, Aime varyo atthangi kumagobhante soto. This very same noble eightfold path is called sota. That's what he said. Sota in many places is used, sota is used for the ear. Sotancha pajanati, saddecha pajanati, tadubhayampadecha pajati, vinyanang and so forth. Sota is called, uh, the ear is called Sota. And uh, Nadi Sota, the stream, stream also is called Sota. Venerable Sariputta did not mention any of these different meanings. He straight away said, this very same noble eightfold path is called Sota. One who enters, so then Buddha asked, what do you mean then Sota Panna? Then Venerable Sariputta said, uh, one who enters the noble eightfold path at the noble level, supramundane level, that individual is called Sota Panna. 
This meaning is very important to remember. Sota means the Noble Eightfold Path. Sota Panna means the one who enters the Noble Eightfold Path at supramundane level. Uh, this is one of the things that I will explain uh, towards the end of my talk, not to today's talk. <laughs> but but uh, in one of my future talks, I will explain it. So anyway, Venerable, uh, according to Venerable Sariputta's explanation and Buddha's approval, Sota means the Noble Eightfold Path. Sota Panna means the one who enters the stream. Noble Eightfold Path at the supramundane level. We all follow the Noble Eightfold Path. And still we are not called Sotapannas. Only, only those who have attained it at the supramundane level are called Sotapanna. And I will explain it later some other time. So, uh, one of the monks went to a group of one monk and asked uh, what one should do to attain the higher level of attainment, or at least supramundane attainment. What is the difference between supramundane attainment and mundane attainment? Mundane attainment is subject to loose. Everything mundane is subject to change, because everything mundane is in samsara. And it is therefore subject to change. You lose it. For example, you attain jhanas. It's a wonderful attainment. But you will lose it. But if you attain supramundane jhanas, you will never lose it. So that is the big difference between mundane and supramundane. Uh, words mundane and supramundane. So anyway, this particular monk went to... Uh, a monk and asked what one should do to attain supramundane states. He said, understanding as they really are, the origin and the passing away of six bases of contact. Understanding as they really are, the origin and the passing away of six uh, bases of contact. What are the six bases of contact? Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These are the bases of contact. We contact the world with these six doors. These are called six doors, six faculties, six bases, six entries, we can use many different names for these six. And these are the six that we use to contact the rest of the world. And they are called senses, and whatever these senses contact are sensory stimuli that is in the world. So, this particular monk said, <coughs> if somebody knows, understands well these six senses that contact the world, understand they are arising and passing away. 
What does he say there? He talks about not only impermanence, but also dependent origination. Because senses arises, arise, dependent on something, and when those things that, it, that they depend on fades away, disappears, senses also disappears. So, uh, in brief, he said, depending when one understands these six senses and they are passing away, that is itself is enough for one to attain higher level of attainment, like stream entry. He was not satisfied. So he went to another monk and he asked uh, the same question, what one should do to attain the stream entry or high level of attainment. He was referring to supramundane attainment. Then the second monk said, understanding as they really are, the origin and passing away of the five aggregates. Are you, you are familiar with the five aggregates? Form, feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. These are the five aggregates. Understanding them and they are arising and passing away is enough to attain supramundane level. Even that is not very clear to him. So he went to another monk. And <laughs> he said, understanding as they really are, the origin and passing away of the four great elements. <laughs> what are the four great elements? Earth element, water element, air element, and fire element. Understanding they are arising and passing away as they happen is enough to attain high level of attainment. And it sounds very simple. But this monk was not satisfied. <laughs> so he went to another monk <laughs> and asked the same question. He made it even simpler. He said, understanding as it is, as it really is, whatever is subject to origination is subject to cessation. <laughs> that is so succinct so uh, pity, uh, brief statement that this man got even more confused. <laughs> he even did not give any particular category. <laughs> he simply <laughs> mentioned whatever, you see, is subject to origination, is subject to passing. If you understand that, that's enough. This is the statement Venerable Kondanya, Anya Kondanya, made when he attained the stream entry after listening to the first sermon. He said, Yankinchi Samudaya Dhamman Sabbantan Nirod Dhamman. That which is subject to arise is subject to passing away. And this is the same thing that Asaji told Venerable Upatis before he became a monk. Uh, Sariputta, 
<coughs> and this is the statement that many people who have attained enlightenment, like uh, Pali and so forth, uh, made. That is, whatever is subject to arise is subject to passing, pass, passing away. And this monk, are listening to all these uh, uh, five different interpretation, different meaning for the same, different answer to the same question, got very confused. So he went to the Buddha finally. <laughs> he should have gone to him first. <laughs> but you know, he thought the other brother monks uh, who also uh, are known for, his de- for their enlightenment would be able to explain Dhamma very clearly. The fact that somebody has attained enlightenment does not mean that the person can teach the Dhamma. Just like Pachyaka Buddha. Pachyaka Buddha is the Buddha in, by all uh, means, by any means, he is the Buddha. But he cannot teach Dhamma. Although he is Buddha, that is why he is called Pachyaka Buddha. Some people translate here. It as a partial Buddha. Buddha, 99% Buddha. (laughs) 1% missing. What is the missing percentage? Is that he cannot teach Dhamma. So, all these enlightened monks attain enlightenment, but they don't know how to put it into words to make somebody understand. So anyway, when he uh, went to the Buddha, Buddha gave him another parable. Uh, His parable is Gosinga parable. Gosinga is a forest where uh, Several monks like uh, Venerable Ananda, uh, Sariputta, Anuruddha, Mahakasapa, and uh, Buddha, Moggallana, and Buddha were residing. So this, all these monks thought of assembling in, uh, in one place where the Buddha was, and um, uh, each of them, before they went to the Buddha, they uh, asked each other, who would illuminate this forest? Which kind of monk, of which qualities, would illuminate the Gosinga forest? Then, uh, Venerable Sariputta said, when uh, Venerable uh, that then they said their own uh, opinion, expressed their opinions, and then finally they all, none of them were satisfied, although they all were arahant except Venerable Ananda. All others were fully enlightened arahant. Having listened to the answers of other arahants except Venerable Ananda, these uh, arahant monks, even, if they, even though they were arahants, were not satisfied. They all decided, let us go to see the Buddha. They all went. And then, 
Venerable Ananda spoke first in front of the Buddha, Venerable Sariputta asked uh, uh, Venerable Ananda who would illuminate this Gosinga forest. Venerable Ananda said, uh, <clears throat> one who has learned much uh, remembers what he has learned and uh, consolidates what he has learned. Such a teaching as are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with right meaning and uh, uh, phrases, <coughs> and which affirms a holy life that is utterly perfect and pure. Such a teachings as these, he has learned much of, remembered, mastered uh, verbally, investigated with the mind, and penetrated well by views. Now, this is the Venerable Ananda's explanation. When he expressed this, Buddha said to Venerable Sariputta, Sariputta, what he said is true. Because that is what he knows. Venerable Ananda was known for his memory, uh, known for his uh, understanding of the Dhamma, and he remembered everything that the Buddha taught. He was just like a Buddha's tape recorder. Uh, whatever Buddha uttered, he remembered. Uh, so uh, the Dhamma he kept in his uh, you know, permanent file and therefore he says such a monk can illuminate the Gosinga forest. Then Venerable um, uh, Revata uh, Revata said uh, Venerable Revata was explaining his experience, he said one who is who enjoys uh, solitary meditation, takes delight in solitary meditation, is devoted to internal serenity and mind, does not neglect meditation, possesses insight, and dwells in empty hearts. So when the bell, uh, Anuruddha said, Revata said, such a monk can illuminate this forest. Then Buddha said, yeah, that's what he does. So he says, what he does is uh, are the requirement and qualifications for somebody to illuminate the forest. Because he knows what he does and he, that is what uh, he explained. Then Venerable Anuruddha said, when, he, when his turn came, he said, uh, uh, <clears throat> One who has divine eye, which is purified and surpassed the human, and that one will illuminate this forest. Because when the Revata, Anuruddha, had the divine eye. And that is why when the Buddha was going to pass away, 
uh, Buddha attained uh, jhanas, first, second, third, fourth, and then uh, went to Arupa jhana and came back to the first. When the Buddha attained the fourth jhana, all other monks who did not have this uh, divine eye said, Ah, Buddha passed away. Venerable Anuruddha said, no, no, wait a minute, not yet. <laughs> then the Buddha, Buddha went to the neither perception nor non-perception. Then everybody said, Buddha passed away. Anuruddha said, no, not yet. So Buddha came down to the first jhana, and then everybody said he attained enlightenment, Parinibbana passed away. Anuruddha said, no. So... Only when the Buddha, uh, Buddha attained the fourth jhana, second time, and then passed away, then Narada said, now he passed away, because he had the divine eye. So when Venerable uh, Anuruddha made this statement, that one who has divine eye can illuminate uh, the gossing forest, Buddha said, yeah. He also is true because that is what he knows. And then came for Mahakasapa's turn. Mahakasapa gave a long description of his practice. Because Venerable Mahakasapa was a forest dweller. Being himself a forest dweller, he was teaching, explaining, praising living in a forest. And uh, being himself aloof, uh, being himself uh, living on alms food, he did not go to any particular house on invitation to receive food. He simply always went to collect food from house to house and live on that alms, collected alms food. And that is number two. Number three is uh, he used uh, uh, the refuse rag uh, or the robe made of uh, rags collected from dustbins. And uh, he used that. He was so humble that he never wanted to get uh, neat, decent clothes given to him by anybody. But he used this very simple robe. Of course, he washed it very often. But that's what he used. <clears throat> and then, he was using only three robes. Uh, triple robe wearer. And uh, he had a few wishes. Uh, he did not want too many things. He wanted very little, very few things. Uh, he is content himself and speak in praise of contentment. Uh, he is aloof from society. He lived in the forest all his life. You know, one day when Venerable Mahakasapa was old, Buddha said, Kasapa, now you look old. You cannot live in a forest. Come, live with us in the monastery. Then Venerable Mahakasapa, with great respect for the Buddha, said, Venerable Sir, all my life I have been living in forest and I have been praising forest living 
I don't want to break it now. I want to live in the forest. Then he was um, energetic. Although he was old, he was always energetic and praise those who are energetic. He was, his morality was perfect and he was praising those who observe moral noble principles. He gained deep concentration, attained all the jhanas, and praised those who have attained those states. Uh, he gained deep wisdom. Venerable Mahakasapa's wisdom was second only to the Buddha. And that is why when the Buddha passed away, he decided to hold the first council to, to establish the Dhamma in a pristine purity. Uh, and uh, he attained to the knowledge and vision of uh, uh, deliverance himself and praised this. So, when he said, one who has these qualities can illuminate this forest. <laughs> Everything else he dismissed. Then came Moggallana's turn. As you know, Moggallana had the Iddi power, supernatural powers to re disappear in one from one place and reappear in another place and so forth and so on. And he said, such a person, a monk, can illuminate this forest. Now the Buddha's turn came. Buddha said, <clears throat> uh, each in his own way uh, gave their own opinion as regard to who illuminated this forest. Hear also from me. What kind of bhikkhu could explain, could, uh, uh, explain this causing a sala forest would <clears throat> What kind of monk would illuminate it? Buddha, Buddha said, <coughs> Here's Ariputta where a bhikkhu has uh, returned from his arms round after himself, uh, after his meal, he sets down, folds his legs crosswise, sits his body erect, and Establishing him, his mindfulness in front of him, resolves, I shall not break this sitting position until uh, through not uh, clinging my mind is liberated from the taints. I sit in this position and will not get up from this position until the mind is totally, completely free from taints, the psychic irritants, defilements. And that is the Buddha's <coughs> uh, opinion. Now, each of them express their opinion. Except Venerable Ananda, everyone was fully enlightened. And even they did not have one opinion with regard to 
illuminating the forest. Who illuminates the forest? Each had different opinions. So, <coughs> when it comes to jhana, I mention this particularly for people to understand. Uh, as at the beginning I mentioned, some people say you don't need jhana, some people say uh, you need excess concentration, some people first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, and so forth. They express their opinion according to their own experiences. That means <clears throat> what they express is that uh, attainment of any mundane jhanas is not uh, absolutely necessary requirement for attain liberation, but without supramundane jhanas, one cannot attain. Stream entry, as when the Bhasari Buddha said, one cannot attain Sotapanna. Because one who attains Sotapanna stage must follow the noble, must enter the noble eightfold path in supramundane level, which includes the attainment of jhana. So, <coughs> what are the requirements for attaining jhanas? Now, uh, when you practice vipassana meditation, there are certain requirements. You need the same requirements to gain, to attain jhanas. And therefore the foundation basis for attaining jhanas is the same as the foundation for attaining, gaining insight. So, uh, number one of the requirements is uh, morality, uh, ethical principles, at least observing the five precepts as lay people, at least they must attain the five precepts uh, as a basis, the foundation for attaining uh, jhanas. <coughs> Uh, as you know, five precepts, abstaining from killing, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from uh, abusing sensual pleasures, and abstaining from telling lies, and abstaining from taking uh, intoxicants that causes infatuation and heedlessness. And this is abstinence. <coughs> abstinence itself is not enough. There has to be something positive we should cultivate. Abstaining is a negative side, and the opposite is positive side. That also we must cultivate. For example, um, when we abstain from killing, that alone is not enough. <coughs> uh, somebody can say, well, I don't kill anybody, any living being, that alone is enough for me to attain jhana, not necessarily enough. Why? At the same time, the person must practice <coughs> loving friendliness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. These are the things that will manifest 
as you practice jhana, these are things that will come up to uh, the fruition to make jhana a reality. And therefore, abstaining itself is not enough. We have to cultivate something positive. We have to cultivate generosity, letting go of our clinging, craving, attachment. Uh, so we have to maintain our sober mental state. Uh, abstaining from uh, intoxicant itself is not enough, but there are other things that can be, uh, that we must cultivate. <coughs> like uh, uh, maintaining a balanced state of life, uh, sober state of life, without uh, getting too conceited, too pride. Sometimes, <coughs> when, one, when one observes the moral ethical principles, it can make the person very proud, thinking that I observe the precept, you don't, therefore I'm better than you. That itself can be an impediment for for gaining jhana. So we have to be very humble. <coughs> uh, so with firm determination, we must maintain them and don't uh, fall back uh, into our wrong beliefs. Then, contentment. Uh, When we are not content and uh, always uh, want to accumulate, collect various things, our mind goes here and there thinking of what to collect next, what to have for my, what to add for my collection items. In addition to buying things for our day-to-day -day use, we also have something to collect. They are called collector's items. Uh, <clears throat> so we have to uh, maintain our uh, contentment. I know a, a friend of ours, uh, grandfather, he collected uh, even uh, the bottle lids and uh, all the cans he used, all Coca-Cola cans and Pepsi-Cola cans and beer cans, and so forth, one whole room was full of bottles and plastic uh, cans and so forth. He was almost 90 years old. So this young man said, uh, Grandpa, uh, shall I clean this uh, room, this so much junk? No, no, I might need them. I am not dead yet. <laughs> I want to keep them. You know, some people are, you know, pack rats. <laughs> they are they like very much to collect. And uh, these are the people who have these uh, hobbies of collecting bottles and uh, uh, coins and, uh, you know, these uh, door stoppers and, you know, <laughs> broken shoes and uh, <laughs> all kind of things. Uh, because the mind is not satisfied, not content. So those who want to practice jhana must uh, not get involved in this kind of wasting time, unnecessary things. Uh, 
so they have to save, economize their time to spend in their practice. Then <coughs> they must learn to restrain their senses. You know, restraining senses does not mean that we close our eyes when we see an object or plug our ears when we hear a sound and plug our nose when we smell something uh, or seal our mouth when we see food uh, and so forth. Restraining means this is where we need a lot of mindfulness. When certain things happen, uh, we immediately uh, use our uh, mindfulness. Uh, so restraining, uh, restraining also are five categories, five types of restraining, five ways of restraining. Uh, one is uh, observing certain moral principles we always must resort, go back to these moral principles to restrain our senses. For example, when we see an object, we must remember the principle of not becoming covetous. Covetousness is a big uh, impediment. Covetousness is excessive greed for somebody else's possession. So, uh, when we hear a sound, if the sound happens to be very pleasant, we uh, become attached to it. If it is unpleasant, we try to reject it, get upset, disappointed, irritated. That time we have to remember our <coughs> uh, ethical, moral principles, and so forth. Uh, that is <coughs> restraining, uh, killing, stealing, and so forth. Using uh, these principles, we restrain our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. This is called uh, restraining our senses, not plugging our ears and so forth. <coughs> Second type of restraining is restraining with mindfulness. You know, people always say, very, very famous uh, example people give for practical mindfulness, Example is washing dishes. Very famous uh, example. <clears throat> that means you wash dishes mindfully. That means you pay total attention to washing dishes uh, to be mindful. I don't think that's the real mindfulness. If that is mindfulness, then all these dishwashers in restaurants are practicing mindfulness. True mindfulness in washing dishes is while washing dishes, just like any other time, we got to watch our mind. It is not the hand that makes the mind defiled, but the mental state. Not the detergent, not the dirt on the plate. But while washing dishes, anger can arise, hatred can arise, desire can arise, resentment can arise, jealousy can arise. In the mind, when you wash so many dishes, sometimes you get so irritated. That is the time we have to be very mindful to wash the mind, not to let the mind get carried away with this kind of irritation. 
you know, in mindfulness, any meditation, mindfulness meditation or concentrate med- concentration meditation, we always must come back to the mind. Moving, sitting, standing, walking and so forth. There are, there are external activities. Paying attention to external activities itself is not enough. The real thing is to watch the mind. Look at the mind. See what is happening in the mind. And that time we can restrain our mind from having unwholesome, unnourishing mental state or overcoming, overcome arisen, unwholesome mental states and develop, arouse wholesome mental states and cultivate, maintain, support, sustain, encourage already arisen, wholesome mental state. So we always look at our mind. That is where all the sources of problems and troubles uh, come, come, come out. Did I tell you the story of uh, seeking happiness? Secret of happiness? I think I told this story many times. There was a deity who wanted to hide the secret of happiness. And he thought, I want to hide this secret of happiness from human being so that they will never find it. So he thought of hiding it in the at the deepest place in the ocean. Then he thought, well, uh, these human beings are very curious. One day, they will dive and go down, using even submarine perhaps, into the very bottom of their deepest place and find the secret. Then he thought, let me hide it uh, in the, on the top of Mount Everest, which is full of ice. He thought nobody would... Then he thought, well, sometimes people might climb that and find the secret. Then he thought, let me hide it in the deepest cave in some deep jungle like Amazon jungle. Then he thought, no, even that is not safe. People one day find it. He was thinking, thinking, thinking. Then he thought, ah, I found a place. That is, I must hide it in human's mind. That is where they don't look. <laughs> For happiness, they always look outside, using eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. They always look outside, never look in the mind. So when we practice mindfulness, we don't look for outside. We look inside. <laughs> We call this insight meditation. Some people miss and miss, don't hear properly. They say <laughs> they think inside meditation. I mean, in a way, it is true. <laughs> we go inside our own mind. So while washing dishes, while walking, while talking, while thinking, while doing anything we do, we must look at the mind. That is how we can restrain the mind. Some people say, watch your tongue. Watching tongue is not enough. We have to watch the mind. So we must <laughs> turn around and say, 
wash the mind. Everything comes from there. So, that is the second kind of restraint, mindfulness. Restraining our mind with mindfulness. Third kind of restraint is restraining with effort. I mentioned fourfold effort in the Noble Eightfold Path. You find fourfold effort. And in addition to these fourfold effort, there are three other types of effort. They are called the effort of beginning, Arambadhatu. They are called element of effort. Arambadhatu, beginning effort. Then Nikkamadhatu, that means the effort to proceed with this initial effort. And then Parakkamadhatu, element of uh, determining not to budge, not to give up. And with these three types of effort, we have to cultivate the other four types to restrain ourselves. And the next uh, kind of restraint is called restraint with patience. Patience is a wonderful virtue. We have to have a high dosage of patience <laughs> in order to do anything noble, anything meaningful, anything worth doing. A lot of patience. <clears throat> and Buddha had uh, endless of it. Patience shouldn't have any limit. It has no end. If we have a limit to patience, then it is not a patience. It is something less than patience. And that, with that patient, we must restrain ourselves. Uh, patient, as I define, is, the, uh, is not letting somebody sit on your head. Patient means buying time to, to say right thing at right time to the right person with right words at the, with right moods. We may say right thing at the wrong time with wrong mood, then you can get give a wrong message. People say, it is not what you said. How you said, that makes the difference. So, uh, we have to have a lot of patience to select time, place, words, persons, situations, and moods to say what we want to say, to do what we want to do. <clears throat> so, for that, we that kind of training is called restraining with patience. We restrain our mind to express or do something. Then the last kind of restraint is called restraint with wisdom. That comes from deep insight, understanding, mindfulness. Lot of spiritual maturity. We grow mature Physically, that is not enough. Along with that physical growth and maturity, we must mature, grow with wisdom, insight. And all these things, as we all know, as we grow older, we, bec- we learn to restrain ourselves, and uh, not like little children. So... <clears throat> All these things uh, summed up by the Buddha with one beautiful simile. Uh, I think you might have this simile in other contexts by 
you know, many teachers. These are very famous similes, but each person uses it at uh, different times uh, for different purposes, although they all fit any situation. <laughs> Therefore, I like to use this same simile. <coughs> Buddha said, uh, you find this in uh, Sanyutta Nikaya. Buddha said, <coughs> uh, a, a man uh, catches uh, six different animals uh, with uh, that has six different uh, feeding grounds. Uh, there are uh, snakes, crocodiles, a bird, a dog, jackal, and monkey. We all catch monkey very <laughs> everybody. And uh, he ties these animals with uh, uh, different ropes and tie all of them together in, together so the ropes are different but all the ropes all the six ropes he tie together and leave them then the strongest will pull all other animals now the uh, the snake, its a snake's uh, domain is uh, um, ant hill. The snake tries to go to ant hill, and then uh, a crocodile tries to go to water. Bird tries to fly, and dog tries to go to a village, and jackal tries to go to forest. And monkey tries to climb a tree. So each is pulling in six different directions. But the strongest one will pull all of them in his domain into his own direction. So this man cannot control these elements, animals. So Buddha said, what this man has to do is to <coughs> tie this, all these animals to a very firmly established stake. You put a stake in the ground several feet deep and make it firm and tie all these animals to that post. Then they will try to pull and pull and pull until they get tired, when they get tired, they will stay within that, within the range of that state. Cannot go too far. Buddha said, similarly, we restrain our senses. This simile is good for both vipassana meditation as well as tranquility meditation. When we get, want to practice jhana, we must remember this simile. When we practice mindfulness, we must remember this simile. That is why with mindfulness meditation teachers use this and tranquility meditation teachers use this 
one who use both tranquility and mindfulness also use this. So the simile is simile serves multi-purpose. Uh, so and therefore restraint is extremely important uh, in order to achieve our goal. <coughs> now uh, There are various ways of uh, gaining insight and concentration. One, I think I uh, casually mentioned, I want to, in this talk, I want to mention them again to conclude the talk. Uh, tomorrow I like to start uh, the practical aspect of jhana. You hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> Till tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> concentration preceded by insight. Uh, remember these four steps. Concentration preceded by insight. Uh, one day you may be able to practice concentration better. That day you gain concentration and then use that concentration to practice mindfulness more intently. Uh, so uh, suppose in the morning your concentration is very good. Assume assume that it is good. And so you practice concentration. In the afternoon, your concentration is not very good. Then what should you do? Do you complain? In the morning, I had concentrated. I cannot concentrate now. What should I do? Don't worry. Practice mindfulness. Afternoon, if you cannot concentrate, practice mindfulness. And then when you practice mindfulness, Mind settles down because you are not struggling. You are not fighting. You use that opportunity, make the best use of it, and take it easy. Practice mindfulness. If you understand what mindfulness is, you can practice it at it any time. Even if you don't gain concentration, you can practice mindfulness if you understand what it is. In mindfulness practice, there is no one particular object. Any object you experience can be used as an object of meditation, mindfulness meditation. What you do in mindfulness practice? Seeing impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness of what you experience. Can't you find these three things, any, these three in anything? You can. In concentration practice, you focus mind only on one object exclusively without paying any attention to anything else, you gain concentration. If you don't gain concentration, well, go ahead, practice mindfulness. So these two always, you, you can juggle. Uh, and you will not 
miss anything. Third way is <coughs> joining these two together. Uh, these two join together or shake hand together uh, at the attainment of uh, stream entry. Uh, at that time you don't have to uh, you know uh, worry because there, this you have already practiced these two separately individually whenever you can and then you develop both you have developed concentration you have developed mindfulness and when both are matured ripened then you come then both join together they are not rivals they are not they don't compete with each other at that time they both come together and join together uh, at that time you attain the stream entry <clears throat> that's the fourth way fourth way is uh, you are either practicing concentration or mindfulness but the mind is always uh, agitated, excited one moment you get a little concentration, next moment mind is agitated and so forth. Still you pay, sim- pay attention to both. The moment that you gain concentration, the moment that you don't gain concentration, you simply pay attention to them. When you keep paying attention to both states, eventually your agitation, excitement, wandering, monkey mind all settle down and you gain concentration. And then by uh, seeing the uh, wandering uh, monkey mind, on the one hand you gain certain amount of understanding, and then seeing gaining concentration, you gain certain amount of concentration, and then mind naturally settles down in one sitting. In one sitting, both of them can happen together. And that is because you have done it in the past, in this life, in previous lives and so forth, you have done it. And therefore this is called settling the mind internally. Settling the mind internally. And when this happens, you gain uh, deep insight, wisdom and concentration. This is what happened many, many times when Buddha delivered sermons. Many people in the audience, they came with all kinds of mental states, agitation, excitement, doubt and problems and so forth, but they, they listened very mindfully. And then the agitation and so forth slowly faded away and mind focused on the Dhamma, the very deep meaning of Dhamma, and then opened their mind and attained liberation. <coughs> so, Uh, what is the purpose of concentration? Why do you want to spend so much time in gaining concentration? Because it is the concentrated mind that can crack open the reality of all conditioned things. And that is why Buddha said concentrated mind sees things as they really are. Samahitang chittang yatahabhutang pajanati. 
This is the statement that Buddha has made in many, many places. Concentrated mind sees things as they really are. Concentrated mind is the right concentration. Right concentration is the state of mind where mindfulness is necessarily is present. Mindfulness is necessarily is present. And therefore, when this combined together, deep concentration and mindfulness, we see things as they really are. So that's all I can do for today, friends, and uh, I want you to continue your practice. And uh, tomorrow I try to speak more on uh, the real uh, procedure in the practice of jhana. So keep your fingers crossed.